Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. What we should have called this series of episodes instead of the Jim Garrison investigation is Jim Garrison under investigation. At every turn, Garrison's integrity is on trial here. Forget about whether Clay Shaw, David Ferry, or Guy Bannister was innocent or guilty of being part of a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy. The Clay Shaw trial itself was such a mess, and it exposed Garrison's personal and professional weaknesses. It is quite an enigma Jim Garrison left for us. I have personally read and reread so much information about Jim Garrison and his investigation that I was left feeling conflicted at times. I don't think I can help you here in terms of an opinion on Garrison. For me, it was a journey out of blackness into light, and a reformation that the world is not always black and white. Sometimes the answer lies in a shade, or perhaps, a number of shades of gray. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Attention all squad, the suspect in the shooting at Elm and Houston is reported to be an unknown white male, approximately 30, slender build, height 5 feet 10 inches, Weight 165 pounds, reported to be armed with what is thought to be a 30 caliber rifle. No further description at this time or information, 1245 KKB 360. 
president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, the first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall uh, asked me that question. So let's start with some basic facts that are generally undisputed by most. John Kennedy died on November 22, 1963, and the Warren Commission report was issued in September of 1964, less than a year later, conveniently in time to be available and out before the 1964 presidential election cycle. Initially, the news services began to get behind the Warren Commission report, citing it as thorough and highly factual. Almost immediately, the Warren Commission not only had the support of the national media, but also most of the American public. Their conclusion that there was just one lone gunman, and that Lee Harvey Oswald was that man that killed the president, was in fact embraced. At first, anyway. No one in the media or in the public had ample time to read the 26 volumes of the Commission's report. This was the second rush to judgment one made by the news media in support of the government's own rush to judgment. The news media put their own good housekeeping seal of approval on the good housekeeping seal of approval placed on by the Warren Commission, right on top of the conclusions made by the FBI. It was a double good housekeeping seal of approval, served up to the American public. One lone government was all it was. Case closed, and now the major news services were faced with a position that would be hard to go back on. It put them in a bind from the very start, in their own unwitting conspiracy of sorts with the government, when it came to applying truly objective investigative journalism to what was to come. The handful of original Warren Commission critics, including Vincent Salandra, Mark Lane, Penn Jones, Sylvia Marr, Harold Weisberg, Josiah Thompson, Edward Epstein, and others, would begin to read the official report and pour over it. They saw glaring issues with what had been done in broad daylight to muddy the investigation and its results. It was even done so boldly and so clearly and documented right there in the report. It was rough sledding in the beginning for those who found disturbing evidence of something more. 
After the assassination, this small array of smart citizens, with their public interest and curiosity, began to chip away at the credibility of the conclusions contained in the Warren Report. There was a gathering whisper and a gathering steam that something was very wrong in what the government had published and the conclusions that had been made out to be facts about the assassination. Yet nobody of any great credibility and certainly no one of any stature inside of law enforcement or the United States political power structure had taken the topic head on. Not yet, anyway. But by the fall of 1966, Jim Garrison found himself on an airplane flying from New Orleans to Washington. On that flight, he was seated next to United States Senator Russell Long. Long was then a current United States Senator from Louisiana. During the flight, the senator expressed his doubts about the findings of the Warren Commission and the ideal that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone. Long expressed to Garrison that someone else had to be involved in the assassination, particularly in light of Oswald's alleged use of the cheap bolt-action rifle that contained a defective scope. And still, even after all of that, scoring two of three hits on a moving target. Garrison would ask Long who he thought might have had a motive to kill Kennedy. Long's answer back was that one shouldn't worry about a motive until he finds out if there appeared to be more than one gunman that would prove a conspiracy. Then it would be time to answer the second question. This discussion with Long on the trip to Washington was impactful to Garrison. Well, it wouldn't take long for things to start heating up. Before the talk with Long, Garrison had put the presidential assassination behind him, so to speak. It had been over two years since that incident with David Ferry, where that person of interest had been retained by Garrison and then turned over to the FBI and then released. When Garrison got back from Washington, he would order a complete set of the Warren Commission volumes to study. It was that set of Warren Commission volumes that would pave the way for Garrison's disbelief about what really happened that day in Dealey Plaza. He would pour over the volumes in the documents. He was amazed at the investigative issues that were right there in the very middle of the written record time and time again. The sworn testimony would contain clear evidence where discussions that should have been had were very clearly avoided. It was a pattern that obvious questioning was steered away from. The fact-finding to a trained eye clearly pointed to a group that was attempting to make a case that Oswald acted alone. It was not about presenting any sort of conflicting evidence. Evidence which would conflict with the narrative, even though the official record time and time again had just enough in it to more than hint that such a circumstance was the case. It could be counted in weeks the time that went by before Garrison would launch a full-scale investigation in December 1966 of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The investigation would remain a secret until the news scoop of the story was broken by two reporters at the State Times in early 1967. It was only after the investigation became public that Garrison would speak publicly about it. But before we begin to bear down on the start of the Garrison investigation and the details of it, I want you to hear from Garrison himself in his own words. In 1967, he gave a public lecture, and it turned out to be a relatively concise view in front of a receptive audience of his thoughts at that moment. So we're going to listen to it today. Yes, the investigation was still underway, and some of the facts were fluid. But most of the story told by Garrison at that moment in 1967 that you are about to hear is still consistent with what he has written about in his two historical books on the assassination. So if we are to put Jim Garrison on trial, let's start with what Garrison himself said before we start listening to what other people said about Garrison. 
You know, sometimes it's, it's hard to distinguish between illusion and reality. When we're younger, we take it for granted that we see what we see and objects in the world in front of us uh, are precisely as we see them. And then, of course, as time goes on, we have more and more doubt about that. Uh, as you recall, going back to when you were younger, I'm sure everyone in this room had the feeling when they were a child, it was impossible for you to conceive of dying, so you assumed more or less that you continue to live forever, even though nobody did before. It was an illusion, a childish illusion, but one which most people have. Uh, of course, that goes with time, but other illusions continue to remain, and sometimes the government takes advantage of it. Uh, one illusion that stays stays with us to a great extent, unless we have the good fortune or the misfortune, as the case may be, to have detachment. Another illusion is the idea that we're living in the best of all possible worlds. Uh, this is uh, this is a favorite uh, a favorite strategy of the of the fascist type of government, totalitarian types of governments too, not just fascist, in order to keep the people from being restless. And uh, actually, you're seeing it applied, I think, rather systematically, in a number of areas, in the government of the United States today. Uh, again and again, I, I think you are being assured that you are living in the best of all possible worlds. Again and again, you see different tactics being used to make the government's power lovable. Actually, there's nothing new about this. Uh, as early as the Roman Empire, and probably even before that, the patricians and their counterparts have found ways to make their power lovable so that they wouldn't have too much trouble from the plebeians. That's the problem, and it's in a sense here again today. But there's a duplicity in that, is the duplicity in making power lovable uh, with false slogans and in making things appear to be better than they are, which I don't happen to like. For example, I am very conscious of seeing fascist tendencies in our government today. Uh, I suppose uh, that right now uh, that places me in the uh, FBI file under... Uh, uh, I'm probably filed with a lot of other people being investigated under the title of anti-fascist activities, which is a derogatory file from Mr. Hoover's point of view. But this is, this is very relevant to the entire subject of the assassination. Let me go back. Let me go back to the way things were about this time, just before the assassination. We had a young president who was showing signs increasingly of being a forceful president and a liberal president in the sense that he was going to make changes that had not been made before. And a very strong reaction was occurring in a number of places, particularly in areas such as Dallas, Texas. And this is not an indictment of the people of Dallas. But there are individuals in Dallas that have an unusually strong control over key individuals on the police force, which causes Dallas to be somewhat different than other cities. President Kennedy was also 
moving in the direction of doing away with a 27.5 percent deduction on the income tax for men in the oil business, which of course was primary was a primary concern to some individuals in Dallas. President Kennedy had reached a rapprochement of sorts with Premier Khrushchev of Russia and was in the process of reaching an understanding with Fidel Castro. I'm sure that it is possible to have a great many views on, on uh, the value of, uh, of these conclusions, these decisions that he had made, but the fact is that he was the president and he had made them and his basic objective was to try and minimize involvement in a war which would lead increasingly to escalation and more escalation until we finally involved in a hydrogen war, which is more or less the situation uh, in which we find ourselves today. Now, the reaction of a number of individuals, especially in certain areas of Texas, was that President Kennedy, in ending the Cuban adventures, in trying to reach an understanding with Khrushchev, in making statements such as he made in his speech before the American University on June 10th, that we breathe the same air as the Russians, which is perfectly true and should have been made, and is something we don't think about very often. But the fact that he made these statements caused him to be regarded by a number of extreme individuals as a communist or a person selling out to the communists. So that there was a, there was a certain side of the spectrum, but uh, essentially the extreme right-wing area, especially in southern states, that had a venomous attitude towards John Kennedy. Now this is just a brief, perhaps oversimplified summary of the situation as it existed when John Kennedy visited Dallas. Now, with that background, let's now jump from reality into the world of illusion for a moment, and we'll describe the official Lyndon Johnson administration version of what happened. It has no connection at all with reality. It has exactly as much substance as the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It has the gold presidential seal on the outside, and that's good enough for NBC. <laughs> anyway, the official story is that every possible safeguard had been taken to protect the president. And he was proceeding down Elm Street, having made the turn from Houston, when from his lair in the sixth floor of the school book depository. A Marxist communist was crouched. I think, actually, uh, there's some difference between a Marxist and a communist, but it's, it doesn't really matter in fairy tales. You can make them the same thing. So he's a Marxist communist, and he's crouched there with his man like a He fires three rapid shots shots of fantastic marksmanship. And as a result, the president, of course, is killed and the governor of Texas is wounded.
And as I know Mark Lane has explained to you at some length, the, this is such an unusual rifle and the ammunition is so unusual that one bullet created seven different wounds and emerged in pristine shape. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a delay of approximately a second and a half between the time that the bullet finished going for President Kennedy and began its journey through the governor. No matter. The, the president's seal was on the outside, and that was good enough for Newsweek. Anyway, this is the official version. In reality, what happened was this. And I'm going to have to be general for two reasons. One, because there are a great many things that I don't know about the assassination. I have never tried to pretend to know more than I do, although I have read magazine articles which have me saying things I haven't said and indicating that I pretend to know more. But another reason I can't go into great detail is because some of the details we have would indicate uh, it would cause certain people to move from where they are and create certain problems for the rest of our investigation. But I can tell you generally what happened. Generally what happened was this. An elaborate conspiracy had been worked on for a very long time. There were three levels. Uh, of course, classification, as I know you well know, is an arbitrary thing. But for, for reasons of convenience, we classify uh, we, we talk operating level, individuals pulling triggers, operating the radios, driving the cars. Intermediate level, individuals providing services, such as uh, uh, David Ferry, Jack Ruby, and others. And then the sponsor level, uh, which I uh, can't go into in too much detail. That gets kind of high up. Uh, but those are the three general levels. Anyway... By the time the president made his turn, the men who would have killed him were set to go. There had to be no less than four basic points from which the shooting occurred. There had to be no less than four, and possibly five. I might add, before I even go into them, that anybody who has ever been at Dealey Plaza or has ever seen a picture of Dealey Plaza will know that if there was a lone assassin sitting in the sixth floor of the book depository, he would have had to have his shot at the president as the president approached slowly towards him on Houston Street. This was the best shot he would ever have. The fact that this was passed up indicates, along with many other things, that the lone assassin was not there. The reason they waited until the president had almost reached the sign was so that he was in a central point so that he could be hit from many directions. The objective was not to wound him, not to hit him several times, but to make sure that he was dead or dying before he reached the triple underpass so that there would be no danger of his surviving and having control of major investigative agencies such as the FBI, because had he survived 
and had he been in control of the FBI, every individual involved would have been caught by now. So it had to be assured that there was overkill. That's why you can't see the autopsy pictures. That's why no one can see them. That's why a pathologist selected by this community cannot look at them because the autopsy pictures will show that President Kennedy was hit from a number of different directions. The autopsy pictures will show that he was hit in the front of the head at least twice. It will show that there's a hole in the president's forehead at the temple line, and it will show that the right side of his head has been torn off by a bullet coming from the right, and God knows how many other wounds, but at least two from the front. And you aren't supposed to see that because you are supposed to be dutiful Americans and believe the fairy tale of the lone assassin because that's what the president wants you to believe. But in order for you to believe that, you cannot see the autopsy picture. But even as I point this out, I must caution you. And this may be hard for some of you to accept, but please believe me, I've never been more sincere. I am sure that if the government is able to accomplish it, it will one day reproduce autopsy pictures, which will appear to be autopsy pictures and support the lone assassin theory. I think they're having some technical problems. But I'm just trying to say that there is nothing they will not do. There is nothing they will not do. They didn't hesitate to kill Jack Kennedy in Dealey Plaza, and there is nothing they will not do. The operation, for all practical purposes, <clears throat> continues. <clears throat> you can see that again and again. We can in the constant interference with our investigation in witnesses being harassed, moved away, one thing after another, constant monitoring of telephones. What this means is that there is a unique interest on the part of high officials in our federal government in the truth being concealed from the American people. The significance of that, I will go into a little further. I mentioned that there had to be four groups of shooters. There had to be a rifle firing from Houston Street, either from the Records Building or the Dalitex Building. I think that most of the serious critics are, are in harmony about that by now because the shot that hit Governor Connolly was such an angle could not have come from the, from the book depository. It appears likely that there was shooting from the book depository, although it is obvious that Lee Oswald had nothing to do with it. Although it is obvious that Lee Oswald had nothing to do with it. He didn't shoot any weapons that day. And there's no indication that he was in any way involved in the assassination. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the indication is quite the opposite. It is very clear that they were shooting from the grassy knob, not only from behind the stone wall, but further back behind the picket fence back towards the overpass area. As a matter of fact, on the day of the assassination, 
Since a large percentage of the witnesses saw and heard the shooting from that area, heard I should use because there are only a few that saw, heard the shooting from that area, but it was taken for granted that the president was shot from the grassy knoll. It took about 24 hours before the official scenario had been issued and uh, the, the emphasis was put on shooting from the book depository, shooting from the book depository. But the, 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 the main bulk of the shots came from the grassy knoll area and 60% of the witnesses in Dealey Plaza heard those shots. And we have talked to at least one person that, has, that uh, was in the grassy knoll area and saw one of the men behind the stone wall. And other witnesses have seen the men afterwards running away behind, from behind the stone wall, throwing something into the back of a car and driving off at a rapid rate of speed. Of course, these things were rather irrelevant, so they weren't brought into the Warren Commission hearing. This is what happened. Now, the last uh, uh, apparent shooting place is something that we have come across recently, several months ago. And uh, you may have seen it. It got some attention from the news services, which is, uh, was a surprise to us. And I'll just mention it in passing. If you're interested in, in, and uh, want to ask questions, I'll go into it more later. But it appears that the subsurface drainage system in Dealey Plaza was also used. Dealey Plaza used to be a residential area. They had a lot of houses there before they removed the houses and cleared it out to make this incredibly beautiful plaza with this, uh, these instant Mussolini arcades and uh, all these beautiful pergolas and things that you've seen in pictures. Prior to that, there were many houses, so there had to be a drainage system. The drainage system is a rather complete one, and it's an interconnecting maze of tunnels, the narrowest 15 inches wide, the largest 30 inches wide, through which men can crawl. For example, one of the entrances to the tunnel system is behind the grassy knob. You lift up a, a three by three foot uh, grate, and you find yourself going down into an entrance, and it's got tunnelways leading in several directions. If you go south towards Elm Street, then you will find yourself in one of the sewers, which is alongside of Elm Street. The sewers that go alongside of Elm, Main, and Commerce look to the person riding in a car, just as uh, about six inch high slits into which the drainage goes. But actually inside, these are like concrete pillboxes. They're approximately five and a half feet deep. And a man standing inside can easily see into the back of a convertible. We had one of our investigators get in uh, inside in Dallas one morning. We had him get in before dark uh, because we were afraid that if, uh, you know, if the wrong people saw him get in, he might be cemented in there and we'd never see him again. <laughs> so I just heard recently, just after we, we really found the the application and the likelihood that this sewer system was used, and I'll give an example of why it appears to be used, that, uh, that uh, Dallas is planning to dig up this entire area in Dealey Plaza, the entire sewer system, and create a great underground parking garage. And uh, uh, 
the name of it is supposed to be the John F. Kennedy parking garage. <clears throat> well, if I had not, if I had not had a single thought about the possibility of a sewer system having used, been used before, this would have roused my curiosity because this is just about the last bit of physical evidence that remains at the scene. There's been a pattern of destroying and removing and shifting everything, and I wouldn't be surprised at what this was related to it. On the other hand, it might be entirely a coincidence. Anyway, <clears throat> the sewer system, the, uh, the closeness of these sewers to a man riding in a convertible down Elm Street becomes very significant when you consider that there was a bullet found on the south side of Elm Street in the neutral ground. It landed on its base among pieces of the president's head. We have photographs of the bullet, and in the photograph you see Deputy Sheriff Buddy Walters of Dallas smoking a cigarette looking down at the bullet, and you see a Dallas policeman firmly standing on top of a manhole cover which leads down into the sewer system. I don't know why he's standing there at this time, but it would be kind of hard to get in there if he was standing there. And the, the clock over their shoulder shows that it is 12.40. This picture was taken 10 minutes after John Kennedy was shot, and his heart was still beating when the third man in the picture, who appears to be a federal agent, although we are unable to identify him because there's no way to get any kind of cooperation from the federal government, is picking up the 45 caliber bullet. The size of the bullet has been identified by comparison with uh, uh, real bullets, and there's no question about the fact that this is a 45 caliber bullet which landed on its base among pieces of the president's head. Now, this was never admitted into evidence in the Warren Commission, nor was it ever mentioned in the Warren Commission in any way. In fact, they pretended that there was a great mystery. No bullets were ever found except number 399, which was found at the hospital, the boat to which they consigned the seven different wounds. Now, the 45 caliber, although it was in the picture and is being picked up, is being looked at by Sheriff Buddy Walters, has now ceased to exist officially because it creates a problem for the federal government. It's not possible to shoot a 45 caliber bullet from a 6.5 man liquor car cannon. The official fairy tale says that Oswald was the lone assassin, therefore it is necessary for this bullet to become a non-bullet. And already Sheriff Buddy Walters has replied when we made the photograph available that uh, he doesn't think he found a bullet. You know, it's kind of hard to remember. It's a lot of things happening that day, and you can't remember whether you found a 45 bullet sitting there or not. He doesn't think he found a bullet. Well, today we released, and I hope it makes the news services out here, we released a copy of a correspondence between two members of the Warren Commission, two attorneys, and one of them is referring to the fact that Sheriff Buddy Walters originally had said that he found a bullet, but now had backed off from it, asking him to question about it further. So this is one situation in which finally the federal government has been caught. They have told so many lies, one lie after the other, 
new lies to keep the old lies, the old lies alive. This is one time when we have finally caught them. It's one thing to know that they've lied, and anyone who has read the Warren Report or Mark Lane's work or Harold Weisberg's looked into it has to know that his government is lying to him rather systematically, at least in this area, and if in this area, God knows how many other areas. But here we finally have them caught. The bullet is so clear, we knew they would say that bullet is not a bullet, so we held off with the letter describing the deputy sheriff's statement. And now we have the Warren Commission records and a photograph to show that the federal government did find and conceal a 45 caliber, caliber bullet that was certainly involved in the assassination of the president. This is very significant because it means in terms of overwhelming probability that not just the command of the FBI, but Lyndon Johnson himself had to know before the sun set that evening that among the bullets which killed John Kennedy, there was a 45 caliber bullet. It means that Lyndon Johnson had to know when Oswald was arrested, among other things, for being the assassin of the president, that he could not have fired a 45 caliber bullet. And it means that Lyndon Johnson had to know that when Oswald was executed by Jack Ruby, that they, the assassins were simply getting rid of a patsy, a man who might tell about what really happened. But I haven't heard a word yet from Lyndon Johnson about the 45 caliber bullet, which his employee found at 1240. It means furthermore, that even before the Warren Commission was appointed, the command of the FBI and the President of the United States had to know there were a number of people shooting at John Kennedy and that the Dallas police scenario was completely false. And in the final analysis, it means that every one of these honorable men, without any exception, prostituted himself let his country down, let you down, by participating in an absolute fraud, knowing that it was a complete lie. 